In, in Mark 9, we looked at last week in the first 13 verses uh, what is often called the transfiguration of Jesus. And we saw in this transformation of Jesus the message that restoration and kingship and the kingdom was going to come about through the suffering and death of Jesus. And so that's the the big message as the disciples have struggled with understanding, though they confess Jesus to be the Christ, how can it possibly be? That here is the king, you are the Messiah, you are the anointed one, you are the one to save the world, and yet you're now going around telling everybody that you're going to suffer and you're going to be delivered over and you're going to be killed and then be raised from the dead three days later and the disciples do not understand this. And this is what Mark is spending his time talking about. And it is interesting that Jesus brought with him only three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John. And as we come into Mark 9 and verse 14, we'll notice that there was something else going on while Jesus and his three disciples were on the mountain watching this transfiguration. We're told it in verse 14 of Mark 9. And when they, and that they would then be Jesus, Peter, James, and John, when they came to the disciples... They saw a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. It's so interesting that here we come back down from this amazing scene on the mountain and we have an argument. There's a whole brouhaha going on down here at the base of the mountain that they come back to. And it's interesting, the scribes now are arguing with the other nine disciples. For some reason, an argument has transpired. Verse 15 And immediately all the crowd, remember everywhere Jesus goes, Mark says there's always a crowd there. Immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. Now I want to stop for a minute and have that pose in your mind. What are they so amazed about? Here Jesus and the three disciples come back down the mountain and they had this whole big crowd up there. They obviously had come to see Jesus. He's not there at the moment. Instead, the nine disciples are there. And in the midst of the nine disciples being there, some scribes have come up and they're having a whole argument. And as soon as Jesus appears, everything stops and the whole crowd, it says, is greatly amazed. And I ask you, why? I will submit to you that the event of the transfiguration has not worn off yet. In fact, this would parallel the scene of Moses in Exodus chapter 34. Remember when Moses comes down off the mountain, Moses doesn't realize that his face is still shining. And all of Israel sees that and it causes them to be terrified. And remember, we saw with Exodus and how how the Apostle Paul pushes that point over to the Corinthian letter, that instead of trying to understand what that meant, they were just terrified and didn't seek the deeper meaning. In a similar way, you'll notice Jesus comes down off the mountain and apparently he still has some kind of effect from being in the part of the transfiguration and everybody is looking at him and they're greatly amazed and yet the argument still is going on. In fact, you see that in verse 16 and he asked them, what are you arguing about? And nobody's like, Why do you look different? (laughs) What is going on? Just like nobody said anything with Moses. 
Here you have the same thing. And notice what happens, verse 17. And someone from the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought my son to you. For he has a spirit that makes him mute, and whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. And he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. I want you to notice in verse 22, it says that it also often cast him into the fire and into the water, trying to destroy him. This is a destructive, unclean spirit that is wrecking this son. And so this man says, here's what happened. I came to you. And of course, implication, you weren't here at the moment. And so here are your nine disciples, and I have this son, and this is what is happening to him. But notice the big words that are stated in verse 18. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. So notice what has transpired here. Nine disciples remain at the foot of the mountain. Great crowds have come looking for Jesus. Jesus is not there. One of the people in the crowd is a man who has a son who has a demon that's causing a very destructive uh, activity in his son, throwing him in the fire, throwing him in the water, trying to destroy him, seizes him, throws him down, foaming at the mouth, grinds his teeth. And the nine disciples try to cast out that spirit and they are unable. What is the argument about? See, Jesus asks, what's the argument? And someone goes, here's what happened. Your nine disciples couldn't cast out the unclean spirit. What do you think the scribes are arguing about? (laughs) See, your teacher isn't really the one. See, you guys don't have any real power. You can just imagine what the scribes are doing with this. You can imagine to see them just rising up and getting all over these nine disciples. See, you guys are false. This guy that you're following, he's really not the Messiah. He's not the one at all. And so this whole argument now is going on. And Jesus and Peter, James, and John come back down from the transfiguration. And they walk into this. Jesus says, all right, what are you guys arguing about? And it's this. These nine disciples tried to cast out an unclean spirit. But the text says quite plainly, they were not able. And that should be fairly stunning. What an emphasis. And I want us to think about now, Jesus' answer, he could have said, well, you know, some unclean spirits are harder than others. This one sounds pretty bad. I mean, he's not just kind of your average run-of-the-mill unclean spirit. He's taking the boy and throwing him in the fire and throwing him in the water and trying to kill him at every turn and casting him on the ground and making him foam at the mouth. And you all understand that, you know, my disciples, they're still learning. You know, they're apprentices. You know, they're kind of warming up to these things. He doesn't do any of that, does he? What Jesus simply says in verse 19 is a declaration of the real problem. Verse 19. O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Notice no excuses, no explanation. No, well, you know these things are kind of tough. Notice what Jesus just simply states. Faith. Faith is the problem. Oh, faithless generation. How long is it going to be until you understand? How long do I have to bear with you? How long until you grasp exactly who I am? 
and what I've come to do. And friends, this has been a repeated concept in the Gospel of Mark is the lack of understanding of the part of the disciples. In fact, that was blaringly obvious when we come to the feeding of the 4,000 and Jesus restarts the whole scene and goes, well, let's feed these people. What are we going to do? And the disciples don't go, well, we remember the 5,000 and how you did that. And so we believe you'll do it this time. They give the exact same answer as last time. Where are we going to get all this food? How is it possible for us to feed all these people? It has been highlighted again and again that while the disciples confess Jesus to be the Christ, to be the Messiah, the anointed one, they do not fully understand the implications of that. They don't have a full awareness of what that means. They understand who he is. He's not Elijah. He's not a prophet. He's not any of those things. You are the Christ. But notice there is a lack of faith that still exists. In fact, how shocking it is, although perhaps not shocking at where we are at at this point in Mark, to say, oh, faithless generation, how long am I going to be with you? Essentially, how long till you understand who I am and what I can do and what I've come to accomplish? And Jesus says to bring the boy to me in verse verse 19. We get the description here in verse 20. When they brought the boy to him, immediately the spirit saw him and saw him, convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about and foaming at the mouth. So here the spirit again is doing this to this boy. Verse 21, Jesus asks, how long has this been happening from his childhood? This has been going on for years. This didn't start, you know, over the weekend. This has been going on for a really long time. This powerful, unclean spirit. And notice now what he says in regards to Jesus about his son. Verse 22. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Oh, I love that request. This has been going on from childhood. This spirit is trying to kill my boy throwing them in the fire, throwing them into the water, convulsing. You just saw it yourself right there in front of your eyes, thrown to the ground and convulsing and foaming. If you have any compassion on us whatsoever, if you can do anything, would you do it? Did you catch Jesus' response? Verse 23, Jesus said to him, if you can, here, here the father goes, you know, if you can do anything, Jesus turns around and says, if you can do anything. <laughs> the problem is not on my end, my friend. In fact, he says there, all things are possible for the one who believes. Notice faith again is the central part of where the problem lies. And now it's expressed with the Father. The Father says, can you do anything at all? Would you please have compassion on us if you have anything you could possibly do? And Jesus just rejects that and goes, if I can do anything, if I can do anything, it's not about my issue if you can. For all things are possible for the one who believes. Friends, big idea here is that the problem is not divine willingness. The problem is our unbelief. 
The issue is not, well, God's not compassionate and He could do something and Jesus goes, ah, I don't care, I'm going to go on. Jesus says, no, I've got the compassion. We've seen that with Jesus over and over again. Nor does Jesus say, well, you know, sometimes these demons are pretty tough and I don't know if I have enough power, let's give it a chance. Let's see what we can do here. (laughs) Jesus just goes, of course I can do something. The issue is not my power, nor is the issue my compassion. I have both. I have compassion for you, and I have the power to do something. The question lies, do you believe that I can do something here? Do you really believe that I have the power to do something And I would like for you to step back for a moment and just feel the weight of what the Father said and ask yourself the question if you've ever thought the same thing to God. God, if you can do anything, could you do something about this? If you have any care at all, do you have any compassion whatsoever? It's easy to approach God with this kind of attitude of, well, you know, I don't know if you really care, God, and I don't know if you can really do something. If you think you can do something here, would you look kindly upon me? Notice Jesus challenges that thinking. Because the Father seems to be coming about it in a very appropriate, humble way. You know, if you can do something, if I can do something, of course I can do something. And we need to truly think about our approach before God in that. In this regard, do we really believe that there is nothing too great for God or not? Because that's Jesus' answer. Of course I can. The question is, Do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus has compassion and can do anything? Do you believe that He can respond to whatever the need is and whatever the situation is? Do you truly believe that that is possible? Do you really believe that this can be accomplished? Do you believe that God can do anything? Or do we put God in a box and say, He can do anything in certain boundaries and certain limitations and certain circumstances. Because, friends, I believe that is the essence why the disciples have failed in casting out the unclean spirit. I mean, think about the question for a minute. Why would they fail? Is it because the unclean spirit's too strong? Would it be that the disciples don't have enough power given to them by Jesus? What's the problem? Faith. The problem is simply faith. And what happens is in a lack of faith, what we have the tendency to do is we want to depend upon ourselves. We will take care of it. We can do this. We will try to accomplish this. And I hope that if you've lived life long enough, you realize That when you try to solve all of your problems all by yourself, that usually goes horribly wrong. God, you just sit over here for a while. I got this. Oh boy. That's what these guys apparently have done. I don't believe 
that they have the power to cast out this demon. They don't believe that it can be accomplished. They don't believe that the power of Jesus that they have at that moment is strong enough to be able to cast out this unclean spirit. The obstacle then is faith. The great obstacle before us is a lack of faith. In fact, when great faith is lacking and a lack of great faith, that's the big hindrance. How often a lack of faith, a lack of believing in what God can do, is put before us by God as the reason why there's a lack of success. That it's not the problem of the power of God. It is not the problem of the ability of God, nor is it the problem of the compassion of God. The problem is in us. That we do not truly believe. We believe like these disciples, if you think about it. Do they believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Absolutely. Do they believe that Jesus is the Christ? Absolutely. Do they believe that He is the one who's come to save the world? Absolutely. But do they believe that Jesus can do something at this moment? And the answer is no. And that's happened over and over again. The feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000, casting out of demons. Here we are presented with this scene. They can cast out some unclean spirits, but here is a hard one, if you will, quote unquote. This one's a big one. This one is worse than any perhaps they've experienced up to this point. And the nine fail. And thus the words ring so strongly that this man says, I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. There's a fail. That happens there. Listen to the response of the father after Jesus turns this on the man and says, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Verse 24, immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. I have faith, but I need more. I have faith, but I need a deeper faith. This is reflective of exactly what we've seen in the disciples, reflective now, said in the very words of the Father. They have faith, but they don't have enough faith. They believe. But help my unbelief. I need a deeper faith. I need more faith. I need a greater faith. What a beautiful prayer. What a beautiful request. I believe, but I have all kinds of need for more faith. I need greater faith. And I want us to see that what Jesus does next shows that there is every reason to believe in Him. Verse 25, and when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together. He rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you to come out of him and never enter him again. Think about it again. I don't know what the disciples tried to do. It's not giving us a picture of what they said, what they did, what actions, any of that kind of stuff. But Jesus just commands that thing to get out 
Verse 26, And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead, but Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up, and he arose. Jesus proves there is nothing too great for him. There is nothing that is too much for him. It is so important that we would see Jesus in that line. There is nothing that is too immense, too difficult, too unbelievable that we would not put our faith in Him. That has happened so many times in this Gospel. How many times has Jesus come to a situation where people just go, well, He can't do anything about that? One of my favorites that we saw back in chapter 5. Jairus comes to Jesus about his daughter back home. Come, my daughter's about to die. Come heal her before it's too late. And in the process of certain events, a messenger comes and says, don't bother the teacher anymore. It's too late. It's constantly this challenge of faith. Is there something too great? Something too big? Something that God cannot do? Here is a great scene of it. Here he's now pictured as basically dead. And Jesus just gives him life. Pick him right up. He's fine. I give life. I give healing. I have power over death. I have power over sin. I have power over these unclean spirits and evil forces. There is nothing that is outside the power and control of God. And ultimately, it is a challenge to the disciples. Do you believe that? Do you believe that there is a power that is greater than God? Because that's what's at stake here at the foot of the mountain. Well, this unclean spirit's really, really strong and powerful. I don't know if this is going to work this time. And Jesus simply puts all of this squarely on faith. In fact, notice what happens in verse 28. You, you, you love that these things are recorded for us because you know this had to happen. Verse 28. So they entered the house and the disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? That is so great. You, you, after all this is said and done, we've got, the, okay, here's Jesus of the 12 and here we come up and go, why did that work? <laughs> what happened? <laughs> we tried to cast it out and it didn't work. So when we get Jesus in private, why did that not work? What happened? Verse 29, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Not in your abilities, not in your mind, not in your knowledge, but it only would happen through prayer. What's the point? Do you need more faith? I think if I were to take a poll and say, everybody raise your hand, if you need greater faith, we'd all go, yes, and then some, right? More and more and more. How do you have greater faith? What does Jesus say? Pray. Probably the thing that we ditch the quickest is prayer. But prayer is depicted to us as the avenue of faith. In fact, if I think about my prayer life, and I would suppose your, your life model is the same, 
when do we typically stop praying or decrease in prayer life? But when we're becoming self-sufficient and we think we're doing pretty good. You know, I got this. So I got this so I don't need to pray, right? Okay, prayer is over there. I'll save prayer for my deepest, darkest hours, but I've got this. I'm good. I believe it's often, a re- maybe it's just a human condition, but I think it's also a, a result of just, you know, we are 21st century Americans and we're supposed to be independent and not need anybody or anything. And so, God, I'm glad that you're my, you know, safety net there and I'll walk out here and do my thing and you just be there if I need you. And I think that's what happened here with these nine. We got this. We can do this. And they fail miserably. Why did we fail? We don't understand. What, why, why, did, why, did we, why did we not be able to cast out this demon? Jesus goes, did you pray? <laughs> oh, hmm. <laughs> no, we were just kind of going about it ourselves here. This cannot be done except for prayer. The message throughout the Gospel of Mark is truly that disciples need a greater faith. I hope you've been able to see it now for nine chapters. I'll remind you of it very quickly. You have in the very beginning of the Gospel where we have a leper that shows faith in Jesus in Mark chapter 1. Remember, we see the faith of this paralytic and his four friends as they lower him through the roof to have access to Jesus. We see this demon named Legion and the one who had all that cast out of him. He turns around and says, I'm going with you wherever you go. This great faith is on display out of him. The woman with the flow of blood in Mark 5, if I could just touch his garment. I'd be healed. Jairus with his daughter believing twice, once coming for the healing, and then once the daughter's dead, still saying, Jesus, come to my house. Great faith is on display again and again. And then Mark stops and starts describing the unbelief. He's amazed at the unbelief of the crowds. He's in Galilee, his hometown, and he says, no miracle could be done there because nobody believes in him. Nobody wants to come to him. They don't believe in what he can do. And he's amazed. He's astounded by that. We see the lack of faith in the disciples and the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. Remember the Syrophoenician woman that we looked at a few weeks ago. If I could just have the crumbs, not asking for anything, I'm not asking for a steak dinner or anything, just give me the crumbs that fall from the table. That's all that I want. You are seeing great faith over and over again is the call of what it means to be a disciple. The big message of this text is that we must have faith and then admit that we need more faith. That we have faith. But then admit that we need help and seek the help that God gives. Lord, I believe, but I need so much more. And that we would allow all of our inadequacies and failures in life to drive us to prayer. Don't allow inadequacies to be, well, you know, it's it's all on me. Our failures and our mistakes and our inadequacies show us there is a need 
for greater faith. To run to God for greater faith. And I want to ask a question for a minute. You know, we often talk about faith in this context. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I need faith, but I need more faith. I have faith, but give me a greater faith. Can I ask you something? Faith in what? Because they believe Jesus is the Son of God. They believe He's not merely a prophet. They believe He's the one who's come to the world. They believe He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. They believe all that. But faith in what? What do we need a greater faith in? And it's not just a confession or acknowledgement. Yeah, okay, Jesus is God. Sometimes we just kind of hold it there as if that, I just need, we understand that. We've got that faith. Faith in what? And I submit to you that the faith that we are talking about is a greater faith in the sovereignty and power and rule of Jesus in the world and in our lives. A greater faith to believe that God is not asleep in the universe, but is active and working in the world and in the lives of people. That's where we often fail, I think, in faith. Is yes, there's a God. Yes, there's a Jesus. But does he care enough to do anything for me? And does he have the power to do something in this situation? Jesus answers a resounding yes. Problem is that we don't have the faith in his rule or his power or his sovereignty or his might or his compassion to do anything about it. Do we believe in the full control and power of Jesus in this world and over this world because he is the enthroned king who rules in this life? To state this another way, That I believe our lack of faith and our fears come from a loss of seeing Jesus clearly. I believe that's the message of these past few chapters and what the theme has been right now. Seeing the glory of Jesus. Our lack of faith is because we aren't beholding that glory. We are not seeing Jesus clearly. And friends, I want you to see what was the prior paragraph in Mark 9. Beholding the glory of Jesus transfigured on that mountain. Here's your connection to what this is doing here. You need to see who he is. And when you truly see who he is, you are fully aware of that. And you have your faith wrapped in the knowledge of who he truly is. And not just, okay, well, he's the king and he's God. But to really understand his rule and sovereignty and control and might over the affairs of this world who reigns and rules now to see that power and see that glory. Now faith can begin to grow. And with that faith... To be able to utter the words to God. I believe. Help my unbelief. As we conclude, I'd like for us to ask. What is it in our lives that we believe God cannot do anything about? What do we think God will not solve? What do we think God will not handle? Where in our hearts have we said to God, if you can do anything, 
how easy it is to have a heart of self-sufficiency. That we would rely upon ourselves instead of relying truly on God. If you don't know where to start with faith, I would encourage your prayer to start with those simple words. I believe. Help my unbelief. I need a deeper awareness of you, God. I need to see you more fully. I need a greater vision of your glory. And I need a fuller understanding of who you are at this world. Let's pray right now. Heavenly Father, we believe. Help our unbelief. Help us not just simply acknowledge who you are, to have an academic awareness that you are the true and living God, that the knowledge that you are over all things and control all things, that you rule all things, would give us peace and comfort in this life that it would cause us to stop depending upon ourselves, but depend on you through prayer. That we would live prayer-saturated lives, relying upon you through the good times and through the bad, through the distress and through the suffering, and through the joys in this life. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Our invitation to you this morning is to come to Jesus, to have your faith in him, to see him for who he really is, to believe in him with all of your heart. This is not merely just an academic exercise of, okay, I believe Jesus is the Son of God, but is truly a life that depends upon Jesus because we recognize who he is. Sovereign ruler over heaven and earth. And you realize that this sovereign ruler over heaven and earth, enthroned, putting enemies under his feet and reigning, as we see in Hebrews, making purifications and sitting down at the right hand of God. And you know what he then turns around and says to all of us? Call me Father and pray to me. I'm your Father. You talk to me. I'll help you. That's the kind of God we serve. Won't you come to him and turn away from your sins and be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins and enjoy being a child of his? Won't you come now while we stand and while we serve?